The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Friday, December 29th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the word of the year, the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary word of the year is feminism. Lame. Not as a concept. Not as a idea structure. As a word of the year. What is this? The notion we most agree with of the year? Sure, I'd take feminism. Maybe some of the feminists would only call me an ally. But I say I'm down. Very male-centric of me. But the word of the year? How is this the word? Yes, it was a feminist moment in Me Too in the Time magazine people. I get all that. But the word of the year? You know, searches for the word spiked. That's because no one could agree on the definition. It's not because it's the word of the year. Well, it's a little bit better, I suppose, than the 2016 Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year. Do you remember that? Post-truth. Oh, yes, everyone talking about post-truth. What are you talking about? And then the Oxford English Dictionary had a chart online that showed that searches for post-truth spiked. And on the x-axis of the chart was uh, the months of the year, so they would spike at certain times. And then on the y-axis was nothing, actually nothing on the y-axis. A lot of science behind post-truth. I'll tell you what should be the word of the year. And some outlets have already named it the word of the year. Financial Times did a good piece on it. The Boston Globe highlighted it. It's woke. It definitely needs to be woke. Woke is a beautiful and perfect word. Now, it is slangy and nouveau, but it's good slang and nouveau that actually adds something. Let me give you an example of the opposite. The phrase, not a phrase, a word, the word thirsty. All thirsty means is overly eager or just eager. Thirsty is just a new way because we always need new ways of saying the old thing. Thirsty is the on fleek of eagerness. But woke is great. Woke, first of all, it's one syllable. So that's better than maybe it's longer analog, which is something like conscious raised, having undergone a consciousness raising. So it does mean that in the earnest sense, but it's also playful if you want it to be. So people can say it and they could seem not so serious, but also express, hey, I'm woke. But if you want it to be more than playful, if you want it to be ridiculous also, dude, that is so woke, it does that too. It's one of those excellent words that, that, that changes. It's like a dude or smurf. It is what you want it to be. Woke is the perfect word for this time. Right, feminists? Am I woke? On the show today, it is the last spiel of 2017, and I will talk about, at least in my city, the best trend. But first... She is a stand-up comedian whose bone quee quee character hit internet gold, and now she has a new special out on Epics, Angela Johnson. Angela Johnson is a stand-up comedian, a veteran of Mad TV, and we're going to get into this YouTube sensation. She had a uh, character that affected the culture and still does to uh, some extent. Her new special on Epics is Mahalo and Goodnight, mm-hmm. i.e. it's Hawaiian. Hello, Angela. How are Hi, you? Hi. I am well. Thank you for having me. Why'd in you... the same chair Bob Saget was in. Thank it, you. It's what we call the Saget chair. Okay, good. Like, did he uh, also comment on how amazing the chair is? He he took the chair for granted more than you did. You uh, noticed the chair. You he, were more yeah. present in the chair. Not, not his observation. No. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> he had his shtick to get to. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't really interactive. <laughs> you were doing crowd work with the chair. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Why do you want to do Hawaii? Because I don't think I've ever seen a stand-up special in Hawaii. Really? No, there's been a couple. Um, Elvis, for one. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hilarious. Uh, Yeah, it was When he did Love Me Tender and his callback. (laughs) Dying. I'm dying. Yeah. Listen, I have four-hour specials, and each one I've picked where I film based on my fan base. Mm -hmm. Three years prior... I, I put a show on sale. I'm, I'm coming to Hawaii. In my mind, I was like, okay, if it sells out, we'll add a second show. It's going to mm-hmm. be amazing. Well, the day after my tickets go on sale, Bruno Mars goes on sale for the same day. Yeah. Right at the venue across the street from mine. So you're going head to head with Bruno with Mars. With Bruno Mars. Yeah. Like the biggest guy in the world, and he's their Although, hometown. Ironically, one of the smallest guys yeah, in the world. Yeah, ironically. <laughs> isn't that funny? Are you taller than Bruno yeah, Mars? I think I am, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, but oh, God, I love Bruno Mars. And of course so you do. That's like, why you bought tickets for a show and didn't show up to exactly, yours. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. Nobody's going to come to my show. I don't even want to come to my show. Mm-hmm. I want to go to Bruno Mars' show now. Like, this is ridiculous. Nobody's going to come to my show. I ended up selling out, added a second show, sold that one out as well and it was unreal so it was in that moment that I was like wow Hawaii is showing me so much love I'm going to return the favor and I'm going to come back and shoot my special here so that's what I did why do as you ponder why do any of these places specifically come to love jump on the Angela train as they say you know what I think I'm very family oriented and it's a family friendly show you don't curse at all yeah you don't get you don't do polarizing stuff it's more inclusive you don't do I want to make sure my show is a break from everything that we see in our Twitter, our Facebook, on news, wherever you get your news from, yahoo.com, whatever you get your news from, I want to make sure that my show is a break from all of that. Just come and like, hear some stories, laugh, have a good time. Don't feel like you need to put your opinion into this because I'm not going to right. say something to egg on your opinion. I'm just going to share with you life, and then you do life, and we're going to relate on the fact that we all do life together. In our house, our roles are kind of reversed, and we're okay with that. We are okay with that. Like, whatever works for you in your relationship, do that. You know what I mean? Like, do what works. For us, our roles are a little flippy floppy, you know? Like, I can bring home the bacon. I'm just not allowed to cook it. (laughs) My husband loves to go shopping. I love to sit outside the store with the rest of the husbands. But as a comic, you can't turn it off, right? You can't turn off the way you look at the world. And if you, just judging by your Twitter feed and the fact that you're a person, a woman in 2017, a woman of uh, color in 2017, Uh like you're experiencing this, you're thinking about it. So do you have to fight to keep it out of the act? Do you have an outlet for the stuff that might be brilliantly hilarious, but not, uh, you know, of a piece with everything else you're talking about? You know, that's a really good question you bring up because I feel like my, my voice on Twitter my I want to fight for those who don't have a voice and and be their voice is a newer thing for me. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I feel like it's with this administration, I feel like I have to fight for people. I have to use my voice for those who aren't being heard. Because we were we were saying before we were rolling the mics, your dad is Mexican. Yes. Your mom? Mexican as well. Okay. So mm-hmm. what we're saying is you're Mexican. Yeah. American. Yeah, yeah. Mexican American, <laughs> Native American. Your husband is Puerto Rican. Okay. Yeah. Asterisk, that's American. Not yeah. not a lot of people knew that before the big hurricane. Some people still don't. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, I feel like 
this administration right now is kind of forcing me to be more vocal about certain things that I never was before. So it's a new thing for me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So it might be a little harder as I'm starting to write new material right now because my hour just came out. So now I'm in that process of like, you know, getting rid of the old stuff, starting new stuff. So I think I will be a little torn and want to share more of uh, the things that are on my heart and that are weighing me down. But I'm I'm going to f- focus on staying true to um, my storytelling style and the reason why people love coming to my shows, which is because they do just want to come and have a good time. So it's going to be a challenge. They know you and like you as a person. This is a little bit different from the person they know. But do you do smaller uh, venues? Do you do drop-ins where they're not even coming for you? Yeah, I'm I'm starting to do more of those. I think early on in my career, those rooms would intimidate me to stop into like just the improv or the comedy store or whatever, like just on a Tuesday for like 40 people I would be so intimidated I'd be like nah I'll just wait till my show's on the weekends like you know what I mean so I'm starting now to make more of an effort to be like okay let me go drop in let me when somebody asks me hey can you come do my Tuesday I'm gonna say yes I'm gonna force myself to go and say yes how did you come up as a stand-up? Were you more a performer before you were a stand-up? I moved to Hollywood because I wanted to be an actress. Mm-hmm. And I started as an extra and kind of worked my way up. Which movies? Um, or TV shows? On the TV show Friends. Oh, really? The best show of all Can time. Can we see your back oh, in, in the in Central Perk sometimes? Can you? Wow. Let me tell you. I'm on yeah. season 9 and 10. Okay. Did you interact with, what was his name? Gunther? Gunner? Gunther. 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 I, you know, that entire cast was lovely. Nobody was a diva. Everyone yeah. was just lovely. Lovely people. They were great to watch and learn from. Isn't it interesting and humbling? Humbling. So here you've done four-hour specials and you sell out theaters and your star is rising. But you will literally, even though you attract but uh, a small portion of the screen, you will literally never come close to getting as many eyeballs on you as when you were just in the background drinking coffee yeah. in your first job ever. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. Like that I that was the number one show. Back when a time life. when number one show meant 30, 40 million people and the way that show plays throughout the world and is on oh, yeah. cable in reruns, it's just yeah. so universal. Kids who are twenty years younger than that show right. have watched every episode of that right. show. Yeah. But here's the thing. I think maybe actually mm-hmm. you might be wrong because YouTube. Yes. YouTube is life changing. It's unreal. And I want to ask you about that. So okay. let's just stay with the friends thing for a second. Yeah. Did you ever get a line or ask for a line? Was that ever? Are you kidding me? No way. I would never have the audacity to do that. Um, and they would say, get out of here. That's and it. You I'd ruined be fired it forever. Yeah. <laughs> she asked for a line. Yeah. No. Yeah. But I was Also, so... they didn't have a strict no Mexicans policy, but you know. But there was just two of us. Yeah. Me and my cousin, and she actually looks white because she's half Irish. <laughs> but, okay, so I worked my way up from an extra, and then after Friends was done, they had the Joey spinoff show. Sure. And then I went on to another show after that, and they made me a stand-in on that show. While I was standing on that show, yeah. I took a joke-writing stand-up comedy class Yes. at a church. Does Wow. Does that work? What did, they, what did that class give you? Does it work? Hello. I'm here with you right now. So what did you learn from the class? Lots of technique. Um, everything from like joke writing tricks, like comedy is in the rule of three. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Oh, okay. I didn't know what that means. So I take this class and I, I wasn't trying to be a comedian. Yeah. I wasn't like, okay, where can I get stage time all of a sudden? It was just anytime somebody would be like, oh, you want to do my Tuesday night? I'd be like, yeah, I guess so, whatever. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm not a comedian. I'm an actress. I just do this for fun. Like that was my like thing that I would say. Right. And um, so it's January 2007. The video hadn't come out on YouTube yet, right? I just took this class and like I'm doing a couple spots here and there. I have nothing to my name. Don't have 
a job. I don't have an agent. No money in my bank. It's like you tried, give up, go home now, right? The only reason why I stayed in Hollywood is because, I, one, I felt in my spirit, like deep in my gut, I felt like, I'm not done yet. Like, I really felt like God was saying, I'm not done with you yet. Just wait, just wait. And that and my sister would send me money to pay my rent. Yeah. She would send me gift certificates to the grocery store so I could eat food. Like, it was, she was like, don't give up, right? So I was like, okay, I'm going to stay, right? So January 2007, I have nothing to my name. And um, all of a sudden, this nail salon video comes out on YouTube. And um, from January to February, there was 4 million views. And this is, well, YouTube's brand new. Like, this is a whole new thing. To get a video and an email, you're like, wait, what? Had you been making others and this was the first that popped? No. The, I, I didn't even make this video. I, I did a stand-up set at a comedy club. They recorded it yeah. and they put it up on yeah. this brand new thing called YouTube. Huh. Making videos was not even a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And it just blew up my spot. And so by March, I ended up getting an agent and a manager. By May, I had audition for Mad TV, and I booked Mad TV. Wow. And that's where I did the character Bong Quickly on Mad TV. Hi, everybody. Bong Quickly here. Well, I used to be on the show. I would always be calling out security all the time. Like, security. You know what I'm saying? So I started thinking to myself. I said, Sam, I think you should start a security company. So I did. Have you ever heard of Homeland Security? Well, this homegirl security. So what was the challenge of then getting into the sketch world in front of everyone on actual network television? Here's the thing. I was on Mad TV the same year there was a writer's strike in Hollywood. Right. I was only on four episodes before I was let go because of the writer's strike. Okay, so how... This was still relatively new. Bonquiqui gets like 60-something million views on YouTube. Crazy. Do those videos still help your career? Absolutely. That's how people find you? That's that's how they find Fans. me. That's how yeah. they know of me. Ten years ago, they saw the nail salon video, and they hear I'm coming to their town. They're like, oh, my God, the nail salon. We have to go. Like, it's, That's great. Do you still like the character? Do you feel trapped by her? Both. Yeah. Both. Both. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go back too often. To the character? Yeah. I have to every single show. And here's the thing. I've come to terms with this, and and I've made peace with it. You hear about, like, these, like, bands who have this, like, one hit. Yup. And they have to do it everywhere they go. And they're like, but I have all these new songs, you guys. But everyone wants to hear that one song. I'm going to see Tommy Two-Tone. If they don't play 8675309, I do not. Why are we there? Yep. Why are we even there? I started... Through, I went through a season in my life where I started listening to the wrong people. I started listening to haters and critics and people that were like, oh, she's still doing that nail salon joke. That's all she has is that one joke. That's yeah. all she has, right? So I started listening to the wrong people. And um, I went through this phase where I was like, all right, I'll show you. I don't need this joke. Watch. I'll prove it. I don't need this joke. And um, I remember the first time, and I think the only time, that I didn't do the joke. It was in San Francisco at a comedy club. And I was very, uh, like telling myself, I'm not going to do the joke because I'm making a stand. I'm bigger than this joke, right? I didn't do the joke. I could feel people were sad. Oh. I was sad, right? Yeah. I got Facebook messages after. I got a message from this girl after. She was like, hey, um, 
We loved your show. We drove in a few hours from whatever town and my friends and I came because your nail salon joke is, it's like our thing. It's like we share it with each other. It's our special thing. And so we were so disappointed that you didn't do that joke and we drove all the way like three hours to come and see it. I was crushed. And it was in that moment that I was like, screw these haters and critics who don't buy tickets to my shows. I perform... For the fans, the people who love me, the people who want to see me, the people who pay their hard-earned money to come and see me perform live, that's who I perform for. So if they want to hear this joke, I'm going to do this joke for the rest of my life. As long as they keep paying me to come and tell jokes and to do this nostalgic, this piece, this one-hit wonder type thing, this this, this song that people always want to hear from whatever name the favorite band— I'm going to do this joke for the rest of my life because that's thank you for supporting me in my career, for making me who I am today, for paying my mortgage. Thank you. I will do this joke for the rest of my life. They'll get that one thing that yeah. they really just want wanted to hear because it makes them warm and fuzzy inside because it, them and their best friend share this joke or them and their mom before she passed away used to laugh at my joke. Like this is their one thing that they have. I'm going to give it to them every single time. That makes sense to me. I think it's in contrast with some other comedians who, probably different from you, see the audience as, oh, they'll say they like their fans, and they do, but they see the audience as it's us or them, the old Carlin joke, either I'm going to kill or I'm going to bomb, but someone's going to die here. Mm. Like a real death battle with the mm. audience. And maybe you're fooling me because you're a good performer, but I <laughs> see your, I think that you might see the audience differently. Like the way you phrase things on stage with you guys and have you ever, it seems like it's more communal and you sure. don't have that confrontational attitude, yeah. even subconsciously with the audience. Well, my whole goal in joke writing and storytelling is to connect with the audience right. and to relate with them. I want people to leave my show thinking, Oh, my God, are we best friends? Angela Johnson's new stand-up special is on Epics, and it is called Mahalo and Goodnight, because it takes place in Hawaii, and then she says goodnight. Hey, great to meet you, Angela. Nice to meet you. Thank you. And now the spiel. New York City is on pace to set a sort of record or equal a record of murder or lack thereof. If the current trends hold, or which is to say in the criminologist parlance, unless we get silly with the killy in the last three days of 2017, we're going to have fewer than 300 murders. This is unbelievable. Not since the 1950s has New York City had fewer than 300 murders. It's something of a secular miracle. It should be celebrated. It should be studied. But it's not. It's sometimes noted, but often wrongly noted and contextualized improperly. Murder is down in New York City, but rape is up. The latest numbers are out tonight. The city's murder rate in November dropped 20 percent compared to the same month a year ago. Reports of rape, however, for the month of November were up 15 percent. The New York Times did this too, while murder is down, rape is up. So that seems like the sort of thing you'd want to point out if you're talking about overall crime trends, but it's very, very misleading. The total incidence of rape in New York City, or I think elsewhere in America, isn't up. I don't think they're up. There's no proof that the actual number of rapes are up. What's happening is that more people are reporting rapes and more people are thinking, more women are thinking of encounters they've had as rape. 
And that's a good thing. Earlier this year, a Brooklyn police official got into a little bit of trouble when he seemed to diminish non-stranger rape. But what he was trying to say, and he didn't say it well, was that in his area, Brooklyn and Greenpoint, there were 62 rapes. And he noted, yes, but only two of them are stranger rapes. And then he went on to say, and those are the really bad kind of rape. Let's not agree with him on that. But it is true. If you were to just compare the kind of rapes that we thought of as rape in the 1950s and 60s and 70s to the kind of rapes today, which would be stranger rapes or abduction rapes or something like that, the incidence isn't up. And this is going to sound really, really weird. The report that the number of rapes or sexual assault is up is probably actually a good thing. Because as a society gets more progressive about rape and what it defines as rape, and really importantly, what the police take seriously as rape, as it gets more progressive, you're not going to have, at least in the beginning, a diminution of rape. You'll have an increase. Sweden has some of the best laws about sexual assault in the world. They also have more rapes reported than their Scandinavian neighbors just because they define it differently. In fact, they define it more in line with what an anti-rape advocate would want. But as far as murders, and it's a little different than sexual assault, it's a little different from just about any other crime. Criminologists like looking at murders because, you know, chalk outlines are fun, but also because they're absolute. And there are some instances where you don't find a body, but mostly if you're murdered, we know it. And if there's a body, there's definitely a crime. It's not the case like there is a he said, she said over who owned the artwork in terms of uh, possession and property crime. It's not like uh, an assault where some go unreported or some go falsely reported. There's not a whole lot of false reporting of murders. There is a body or there isn't. So murder is in a way a gold standard of crime. And New York City has reached something of a gold standard among big cities. It is glorious. It is a miracle. It is annoying because it's swept away with on the one hand coverage like we've talked about, but also it has barely been noted how wrong some experts were. First of all, there was talk of the Ferguson effect and the Ferguson effect was the idea that policemen weren't emboldened to do their jobs and therefore crime would rise. We saw in a few months after the Ferguson, Missouri protests, some evidence that in some cities crime was rising. The people who wanted, the people who were motivated to make a dishonest argument jumped on that, labeled it the Ferguson effect. We're not seeing huge examples that that has really had an effect in society. And in New York City, where a stop and frisk policy was thrown out by judges, and this caused a great tumult at the time. When this stop and frisk policy was thrown out, it was thought, well, what's going to happen is that crime is going to rise. The mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, who was always a proponent of the stop and frisk policy, blasted the judge Shira Scheinlin's decision at that time. Throughout the trial that just concluded, the judge made it clear she was not at all interested in the crime reductions here or how we achieved them. In fact, nowhere in her 195-page decision does she mention the historic cuts in crime or the number of lives that have been saved. I believe Michael Bloomberg's motives were pure. His critics will just say he's insensitive or he's a racist. I just think that he's a logician. He saw that crime was falling. He knew it was very important to keep crime falling. And he thought that this was a technique to do it. And almost 
all the top minds in the field agreed with him. Here's how the Atlantic, this was the framing of stop and frisk the benefits versus the cost, which would be a rise in crime. The Atlantic did a huge cover story on it, and it was called, Is Stop and Frisk Worth It? And in it, they quoted Frank Zimring, who teaches at the UC Berkeley, who called himself a McGovern liberal, and who wrote a book about New York, The City That Became Safe, New York's Lessons for Urban Crime and Its Controls. And his big lesson was proactive policing. In other words, stop and frisk. It was thought and backed up by lots of evidence that, yes, there was a disproportionate frisking of black and Hispanic young men, but the effect of that was that crime was going down. And in fact, right after the judge's decision, crime started ticking up in the city. Here was a Daily News coverage. A dramatic drop in stop and frisk encounters has emboldened criminals and made cops more reluctant to take proactive action, even as murders and shootings are on the rise in the city. And the statistics that they cited right after the uh, stop and frisk ban went into effect were pretty stark. Stop and frisk encounters were on pace to plunge by 42% in that year, 2015. And they noted, as the number of stops fell, the number of murders spiked 19% in the first five months of the year. The number of people shot is up 9%, and the number of incidents jumped 9%. That seemed fairly compelling. It's unfortunate the thinking went, but stop and frisk kept us safe. Here is an interview between Richard French... His will be the first voice you hear. He's kind of a liberal firebrand guy, and he was interviewing Peter Vallone, city councilman who ran the police committee. Uh, this is Richard French putting it to Peter Vallone. As long as you're willing to say up front, hey, if you, live in there, if you live in a rough neighborhood, you should expect to be stopped and frisked rather than if you're living on Park Avenue or Astoria. As long as we're saying that Absolutely. comes with the territory That's... by living there. Right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. As long as you're willing to say, if you don't get stopped and frisked, you will lose more lives, that's, that's completely consistent. As long as you're willing to admit, we'll get more murders. Guess what? He was wrong. Mayor Bloomberg was wrong. So I ask, where is the acknowledgement of this? Where's the recalibration? Where's the admission? Well, Valone was term limited. I haven't heard much from him. He has a brother, just like his father was on the city council. He has a brother who's on the city council who still adheres to the stop and frisk is good uh, way of thinking. Michael Bloomberg, a man I have always credited with being guided by logic and statistics. Michael Bloomberg, from everything I've seen, has been mum about this low pace of murders, even in an era where stop and frisk doesn't occur. And what about the Daily News itself? In 2015, they had an editorial, Cops Must Be Cops, Relentless attacks on law enforcement have driven the NYPD into retreat. So where are they? Where was their editorial saying we were wrong? Well, guess what? I reached out to the chairman of their editorial board, and there was one. This summer, they ran an editorial, We Were Wrong. Ending stop and frisk did not end stopping crime. And the reason I bring this up is not just to say, you were wrong, ha ha, how dare you. I was probably mostly wrong. I thought stop and frisk was necessary in uh, this, up until that point, tremendous drop in crime that we had seen. But now there's new evidence in. So you got to acknowledge it. You got to study it. Just like every politician who says gun laws don't work should also study New York. Just like every politician who says you got to allow the police to be aggressive should also study New York. So some proper headlines are, Safest big city in America has least intrusive policing. Think about that one. 
and safest city in America has most aggressive gun laws. Because all of those facts and the low murder rate are true and glorious and remarkable, and very few are drawing the proper lessons from them. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname celebrated my birthday today by getting me a donut from a donut store so vegan that they, this is true, reserved the right to refuse service to someone wearing a leather jacket. Well, the joke's on them because I ate it in a full leather bodysuit with suede tassels. Mary Wilson, just producer, celebrated my birthday as she has every year before 2016 by not having anything to do with me. It's self-preservation. Steve Lichtai celebrated my birthday by passing one of those novelty town resolutions, naming me honorary executive producer of Slate Podcast for a day. I got a proclamation, I got a key to the city, and I got to book a slew of white men on represent. Woohoo, party! The gist. We wish you a happy my birthday. And we hope that the new year, which is only three days from now, is enough time for you to erase the picture of me in a full leather bodysuit with suede tassels from your mind. Oomperoo, deparoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.